Good morning, LBC Radio. My name is Corey Rosen, and you're listening to The Story. But before we get into our episode today, I would just like to remind everybody, please be sure to like, subscribe, comment if you're on Facebook. If you're on YouTube, be sure to subscribe. It really does help out the channel. And if you are listening on Spotify or Apple or even Facebook, you can leave us a, a review. It helps us up in the rankings and get out to new people. So if you really want to support this podcast, that is one way you can do that. Today, I have a returning guest, Mr. Chris Keeney. Originally from Mid-State, Virginia, Chris has lived in Lancaster for most of his life. He earned a BM from Lebanon Valley College as a music and recording major and then jumped straight in to teaching and performing. Over the past 18 years, Chris has taught many hundreds of guitar students, both collegiately and through private lessons. At his height, he was teaching approximately 70 students a week. Though he doesn't have much time for independent teaching these days, he does keep a few individual students, but mostly teaching, most of his teaching time is devoted to the collegiate world. He is currently the head of guitar program at Lancaster Bible College and has recently taken over the program at Franklin and Mark Marshall College as of the fall of 2022. Previously, he ran the guitar program at Albright College from 2005 to 2010. As a player, Chris has been fortunate to have had a wide range of gigging and touring opportunities over the years. He's played with many jazz and rock groups, toured in extreme metal bands, played in regional orchestras, and joined backing bands for national and international artists. Also, since mid-2017, Chris has been the head of worship and technology at St. James Epo- Ep- Ooh, Episcopal-, Episcopal. Yep. Episcopal. Church in downtown Lancaster, he runs all contemporary music, which includes the well-known Saturday Night Live Secular Music Mass that St. James has run for years, while play also running all streaming, video, and technology. In addition, he plays Oud for contemplative worship services and events, including the popular First Friday Compline. Compline. I remember that one. Previously... Chris was the band director and recording engineer for Victory Church of Lancaster for over 15 years. In addition to his music work, Chris has also Chris is also a mixing and mastering engineer for Immersive Media uh, Immersive Music Media Group, which is an immersive sound studio and post-production house in Lancaster. When not working, Chris enjoys spending time with his wife and kids. Chris, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, I'm really excited. We got a good list of things to talk about today. So first being first, what is it like to back for international national artists? How do you even get into that? Oh, that's a good question. So uh, my version has been that I've not joined a particular band at any point. That was the backing band for one artist. Um, I have a number of friends who have done that um, at different times. I've generally been uh, standing in with people when they're playing conferences or large events or one-off shows that come through where they're hiring people. Um, so some of it is just, you know, getting in the mix with playing uh, with higher level people. And then it it literally is as simple as, hey, I know a guy and someone gives you a phone call. It's uh, It's pretty amazing how we can do all this other work. And it just, at the end of the day, comes down to who you know. Truthfully, has been a conversation on this podcast many times. It's as a musician, it's who you know and what do you know them for. Yeah, what are, what are you most known for? Um, I think, at least as a guitar player, I would say it's kind of the Swiss Army knife thing, where mm. um, I can 
I can at least hang with virtually anything. There are I have my specialties, my things that I'm I'm more comfortable with. Um, but like just for instance, I didn't used to be able to do uh, much in the way of like let's say country music or um, something something in those some of those styles. Uh, where now that I've had to do between recording um, projects where I'm, I'm acting as a session musician, playing someone else's music, um, theater has been good for that. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, having to stand in with some of these artists um, has been really helpful for that as well. So between all of that, like now you put me in a country band and I, and I don't feel ridiculous <laughs> and, you know, and I can – you know, pack up my gear and go to a jazz gig that evening and also not feel ridiculous. And that's kind of, once you get to that level, um, as a player, it's, it's really freeing, but it's, it's taken, you know, learning the hard way some of that time. Um, so I've, I've been fortunate to have enough, uh, you know, experience that I can learn the hard way and, uh, you know, figure out how to, to really be at the end of the day, what those, artists are looking for is for you to sound like a musician they don't care how fast you can play they don't care about any of the other stuff for the most part they want you to look like you're comfortable on stage and they want you to at the same time almost be invisible like be so so comfortable blend blending in that yeah like you wouldn't know that you met the other guys that afternoon which is what happens yeah it's Having heard uh, some of your stories from, from like, for example, I had Daryl Davis on and hearing how he had to play with Chuck Berry and uh, how one of his events while playing on the David Letterman show of all of all places, uh, he wasn't supposed to play with him. But that night, Chuck Berry said, you're my piano dude and kicked Paul Schaefer off, off of the, you know, the piano. Yeah. And having it work so seamlessly that even Daryl could play the stingers as well without knowing oh that was a last minute that was never planned at all mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's that should be the goal for any backing musician or session guitarist or session musician at all is that you should be able to be so good so versatile that it wouldn't be known that you met that person five minutes ago yeah and i i say this to students quite a bit but we also talk about it in the theater world uh the the least important thing in some respects is chops like it's mm. assumed that you have a certain level of chops and if you're up here you're not necessarily getting to show that where you show it is by being able to play at this level and then using the the rest of your kind of like mental bandwidth um and and uh, aural bandwidth to pay attention to what's going on around you you know so when i play with a new artist or i'm trying to catch where they're going you know a lot of uh, for years and years people will go like wow it's like it's like we've been playing for a long time yeah because i'm trying to anticipate where you're going and i'm also trying to get a sense of what you want like what's the arc of what's going on here and you know if you're playing some version of pop music whether it's rock or folk or whatever it's semi-predictable anyway, up to a point. Mm-hmm. If you understand the chord progressions, if you understand the style, you can kind of read body language a little bit. You can get pretty far that way. And then it's just listening and reacting really quick. And if something happens once, 
the chances that it'll happen again are pretty high. So you go, oh, that thing again, you know, and, and like, like you say, like stingers, hits and that sort of thing. Um, those are places where you can be really exposed if you're wrong. So <laughs> like just trying to, trying to be dialed in enough where you can anticipate those things is a big part of it for sure. And a lot of these times it doesn't matter if you're so good or so, so whatever it's, the key is, can you, are you, how malleable can you be? You can be the best player in the world. You can be Jimi Hendrix or Eric Clapton. However, if you can't, if you aren't moldable to a certain style in regards to being like a session guitarist, it means nothing. For sure. And the session thing is kind of a separate thing, but in general, you, yeah, you're looking for, it depends in, on the type of session. Uh, if sure. you get down into the Nashville session scene, it's pretty intense. And they, they have expectations where they can say, hey, I want a, uh, like if it's bluegrass, I want a Tony Rice lick here at mm. the beginning of this thing. And you're supposed to, one, know who Tony Rice is. <laughs> and two, be able to play something that uh, emulates that. And if you come from that world, that one's an easy one, right. but you might get, Hey, we want this Van Halen tapping thing here, or we want this Clapton thing here. And because producers are oftentimes thinking in this different context, this umbrella context where uh, it just doesn't work the same uh, mentally for them. They can't come in and say, I'd really prefer this type of a line. Like that's the best they can do. And they're trusting you to figure it out. So some of the, some of the best stuff you're going to hear it really comes down to those musicians coming up with some things on the fly or blending something they already know based on a producer saying, Hey, give me this. And like, we're rolling tape in 30 seconds, you know, like figure something out real quick and then play it, which is crazy. Yeah. And that's another good piece of advice. Study multiple uh, people of, of your instrument, multiple study your prince study your Jimi hendrix study your eric clapton study your uh tommy rice tommy reese uh, uh um the uh the guys that are generally going to be the um like the f the forefront of a style so tony rice would be old school bluegrass uh particular sort of thing you have your your hendrix or your clapton in like the blues rock you have your van halen mm -hmm. um there's a whole list of other guys but those when you hit those particular guys uh, for jazz it might be i don't know pat martino is a big one for or pat Matheny. Uh, yeah no it might be Elton john yeah for when you're talking about stylistically within the context of um what is essentially more pop music somehow uh if you get into the more techie stuff is when you get kind of further afield but um, yeah, Tony Rice would is just such a seminal player that in that world everybody knows who he is, and so you can you can kind of call out that name, um, and be able to pull out an idea of what they're looking for right away from from a sound and style perspective. So back to you, what are some of the most fun international or national artists that you've gotten a chance to play with? Oh, most fun. Um, Generally, they're they're people who are like actually fun people. Right. Um, uh, a number of times over the years, I've played with uh, Sarah Kelly, who's like semi well known in the Christian world and and was in the secular world also for a while. Um, 
In fact, one of the times I got to play with her was right after she had recorded with uh, Slash and uh, Slash and Flea, and I forget who else was on that album. Uh, some some other notable uh, musician, and we were just getting to talk about that, and uh, you know, and somebody that hears what I do in like a sound check or during a rehearsal, and goes, "Okay, I trust you. Just go ahead and do this thing." Um, so sometimes you get that sort of stuff. And then also, um, I've done some on location things like there's a, there's a fellow, uh, Scott Moreau. He's actually done a bunch of work here in central PA. Uh, I'm not sure where he's based out of now, but he's a Johnny cash, um, guy. He does impersonation stuff, um, has written, uh, musicals about that has performed in other musicals that were written by other people. But then he also, um, has, the, has like versions of shows that he does. And I did one with him, uh, during the pandemic, uh, up in upstate New York. And, um, that one was really fun for some of the same reasons, because like, I'm not a big Johnny Cash guy, mm. but when you listen to those tracks there they are really seminal a lot of them and so you're trying to get some sense of those sounds and and how to get those sounds um to uh, to be able to play them and sound legit but again like you're meeting these people sometimes the day before sometimes the day of i think i i finally met scott the morning of our show we had a 90 minute rehearsal and then a concert a few hours later and he was comfortable enough with me to kind of say, hey, just can you take this part? Sure. Okay, great. And then it's just kind of like a look and a nod when you're playing. So those are actually the most fun. It's, it's a little less fun to me personally when I have certain types of sheet music set in front of me and I have to kind of grind, even if the artist is, is uh, you know, big time thing or, or if it's a big time group of some sort, get to stand in with different um, people. Um, and I've done some of that. I haven't done a ton of it, uh, but it's been fun to do when I've gotten the chance, certainly. What is one of the, mo the most valuable or memorable lessons you might have learned for during that? Oh, um, be easy to work with. Um, Absolutely. Uh, because I think, especially guitar players, like we tend to be really noodly, <laughs> where we want to just kind of like move our fingers all the time and play stuff. And that is the most annoying thing uh, when you're in a professional context. And, uh, I know some, some very accomplished players that are, are, uh, are pro level players that are, don't get certain work because of things like that. And then certainly if you're actually legitimately difficult to work with, um, if you're complaining about stuff or whatever, um, but even, even just not being able to get a sense of what's going on and what the trajectory of the of the rehearsal is or the gig is or the sound is and then you're kind of fighting your way through it you're a lot less likely to get that next call so sometimes it's better to do less and make sure you're blending in in fact most of the time that's better um you can like find your find your little times to kind of sneak out but uh, a thing to remember with uh, at least the the larger artists is that they're used to people who are really good. So right. they're they're likely not going to hear you and go, oh my word, this is the best player I've ever heard in my life. It's like they have their favorites. You might even be better than who they think is great, but that's not the point. And so if you're trying to impress them, you're going to impress them more by being professional, easy to work with, 
have your sounds, have your gear ready to go, that sort of thing. I was going to say, some of these people have art. You got to imagine how many people have already played with them, have already tried to impress them, and have already failed horribly. You're going to impress them more by by acknowledging, okay, this isn't the time for me to shine. This is the time for me to be a support to this person. You, granted, yeah, you can do your little chops and little licks whenever it's appropriate, for sure. And be sure to do that, for sure. However, you got to tune yourself down, let humble yourself, and acknowledge the gravity of the situation, and focus more on being a support to that artist, because if they don't, granted, you want them to notice that you're there, but if, if they don't have anything to say to you, it's probably a better thing than not. Uh, for sure. Um, or just in general, they're like, wow, band sounds great. Yeah. Like that's, that's the sort of thing you're going to hear when things are working really smoothly. Um, had that happen uh, a number of years ago, got to play with uh, Stephen Schwartz, the, uh, the Broadway composer. No way. And uh, yeah, uh, that was with Prima. That's Prima so cool. Theater brought him down and a group of us uh, were, his, were the backing band for this uh, kind of a review of different versions of his uh, material over the years. But then he did some playing with us and um, it was similar. He's like, oh, wow, you guys were, you made it easy. It's like, that's what you want to hear. That's exactly what you want to hear. So. That's probably the one of the best compliments you could ever get from that. Yeah. Uh, Steven Schwartz that's, is one of my favorite uh, play play our composers. He, he, he yeah. did, uh, what is it? Wicked. He did Pippin. Oh, I don't know about Pippin actually. Um, the, he's done he's done a number of different like really well known things, and um, he's such a uh, larger than life character, especially for a little guy. But he's uh, you know he's so commanding in that world, and I mean, Wicked's the one that um, everybody still talks about just because it was it was so so good. Huge. If yeah. you haven't listened to the music of Wicked, you must. It, I, it, if if you're gonna watch any musical, Wicked just for the music alone, is a must for me at least. Yeah, and he did. He's done a number of other uh, well-known things. I occasionally blend him with Andrew Lloyd Webber because mm. um, I've played so many of both of their things that I I have to remind myself who which one of them wrote this. Even though they really write differently, it's funny how in your head you can kind of mix those things, but. So, moving on from the international and national backing, you also play locally and with some really cool instruments. Uh, well, thank you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think they're cool. Um, yeah, so the main one that has become kind of like the principal thing that is non-standard more recently would be the oud, um, which I know we did talk about um, previously. Um, and I, uh, I've been pretty, uh, fortunate to have an outlet on a regular basis. Uh, there's a number of different, uh, organizations that have started to incorporate some things like that in Lancaster, but, uh, I'm fortunate that my, uh, day job also is one of those. Uh, so St. James does a bunch of contemplative things and, uh, uh, meditative things, uh, whether they're, they're separate events, um, sometimes incorporated in an actual service. Um, 
They have uh, meditation groups that meet during the week. Uh, it's been kind of a, a good experience to be in that community just in general, but then uh, they give me an outlet to to do that. And, and Oud, because of its nature, uh, you know, you're not playing Western music. I'm not coming in here playing like a Jingle Bells on the Oud or whatever, you know, although you could. Um, it, the the style, if it's if it's legitimate at all to its kind of like um, origination or at least how we would view it now as a mostly Arabic instrument, even though it's it's way more widespread than that. Um, a lot of times it's based around improvisation and uh, quite long improvisation. So it, it'd be nothing to hear, uh, you know, a talk seem that's um, lasting for 20 minutes, 25 wow. minutes. Now, I don't tend to do those that long. We kind of do more bite-sized chunks uh, with what I do at St. James. Uh, and I'm also, again, blending um, what I do as a guitar player with this instrument and and uh if you want me to pull it yeah, out sure. here i can um yeah so i brought this along just to just to show and demonstrate so the um a traditional oud is going to have a lot of similarities but this is clearly not traditional it's a uh acoustic electric instrument that uh, allows me to plug in and and play pretty high volume but not uh, feedback so that's why I'd gotten it originally but it ends up fitting me uh, especially well because the the instrument itself uh, certain types of ouds regionally depending how they're built aren't meant to sustain very long there's the note is kind of short and this one especially when it's plugged in it's it's not very loud uh, unplugged uh, sustains a long time so I can almost treat it a little more like a guitar or and it's really an overlap with uh, Indian uh, Sarad if you've heard of a Sarad so um, they're guitar-ish instruments but uh, they're they're really distinct because they um, one no frets right. uh, but but two you're you're approaching it more as a as a uh, you know, single note at a time. You might play occasionally, do some, some two or even three note things at a time, but predominantly single note. Uh, so that changes how you view it. And being able to like provide your own drone. I often play over a drone just because it enables me to be purely melodic, and that's kind of my east meets west thing, mm. where it's a little more in my wheelhouse to do that. Um, and frankly, more of an Indian thing, but that was more what I came up on. So, yeah, um, I don't know if you'll be able to hear any of this. I can move the mic down a little bit. Yeah. Um, and it's not going to sound like much uh, unplugged, but... So, I can very easily play this badly and play it out of tune slightly have to train your ear to be able to find it in that respect it's very much like a violin or or something like that um but uh because of the fact that you've got much wider range and and more strings and all of that uh it's more complicated to do and so you have to kind of figure out how to in your way of playing if you are going to play in a non-traditional way which i 
I'm kind of half and half. Uh, it requires a little more of me because there's not, no one's showing me how to do this. Right. Um, now I do, I have, uh, you know, gotten a chance to play with uh, a handful of like very accomplished Udists, which is great. And, um, and looking forward to playing with another one um, uh, in, I believe it's early May. Uh, a fellow named Rahim Alhaj is coming to St. James, and he's just one of the absolute highest level players out there. And so we're we're really really fortunate to have him. And uh, you better believe I'm going to try to steal him away for 15 minutes and make him give me a mini lesson on something I don't know with this. But anyway, it's become my my sort of thing. But where where I was going with that is to say when you view it as more of a open-ended thing you're not viewing it as western music so it can take a long time to finish an idea especially if you have a drone that's kind of i use uh, actually a cello drone um, kind of low low note that i just run uh, underneath doesn't change maybe i'll have it run for five minutes maybe it's 20 minutes it depends on what i'm doing and then I'm playing over that and kind of there's a push and pull to it where you can play and then give some space and then come back into things or take a long time to finish an idea, which is something we don't do in our, you know, uh, short uh, attention span culture right. and, and everything. So that's it's been a lot of fun to do this. Yeah, so let's say as a, as a composer recently, I've been challenged um, to write uh you know, more cinematic things. And one of the biggest challenge for me that I found was patience in, uh, because you, you look at stuff like soul or like, like soul's epiphany piece, or you look at, uh, the, uh, the opening scene of up stuff like that, or that's really contemplative or really, uh, it matters. Uh, the space matters, right? It's so easy just to make a melody and that and be really quick and really whatever, um, but the stuff you can do with that and the feelings you can evoke through the space and I'm sure that's been a, a really helpful lesson for for you who are, who is playing some stuff like short, fast, and really quickly to just sit back, relax, and really contemplate on an idea. It's definitely, I would say, at this point not something that's incorporated into, into much Western music. Um, although uh, certain types of, of um, acoustic music may fall into that category, uh, but or certainly anything that's overlapping with um, like quote unquote new age mm -hmm. music. Like there's a lot of that stuff, especially in the eighties and nineties when that was kind of uh, uh brand new uh there was a lot of that open-ended stuff that was happening there especially with synthesizers and things and and some of it got pretty goofy but uh but there was there was that intent with it of this open-ended thing uh but in a more of a western music context and i think that's certainly something that i can appreciate even as i'm writing a you know like a fingerstyle uh, acoustic guitar piece not to be in a hurry to try to get an idea out necessarily. Um, but that man, that takes learning and it takes 
uh, doing it over and over in different contexts as much as possible to kind of one learn to settle, but then also to trust that like the next idea is going to be there, or you can you can make things work in a way that it doesn't feel like you're just taking your time for the sake of taking your time because you don't you don't want it just to be long for the sake of of length, but um, kind of figuring out how to balance those things. It's like anything, uh, you know, you, you build up that muscle, so to speak, by, by doing it and, and by listening to things that you enjoy and kind of sitting and, and thinking about what is it specifically that I like about this other than it's compelling, you know, are there elements of this I can see, oh, well, they, they're doing this dynamically at this time or they're, they repeated this motif from earlier and it's coming back in this way. And like viewing those sorts of things as, um, you know, tools for your toolbox uh, is, is a great way to start to build into that. But you just got to be willing to be uncomfortable for a while, like most learning, you know. Absolutely. That's been something I've been trying to do for a while as a composer to expand my uh and I recommend this for anybody who wants to expand their knowledge and expand or open up because there's only so far you can go with your with your music tastes, right? <clears throat> At some point, you have to expand and you have to open up to other resources. And whether that be uh, a different genre, a different Western genre, like maybe you're for a rock head and you start to go into blues or you start to go into rap or you start to go into country, uh, try other world music. Try it. Try some Indian music. Try some Mon- Mongolian, like mo- like. <laughs> granted, it might not be not be applicable, but like Mongolian throat singing, you can find some interesting lines there that you would have never thought of. Well, and one of the big things with non-Western music in general is that often you're dealing with notes we don't have in our Western system. Exactly. So if you're taught, and if for anyone that doesn't know what I'm talking about, um, you know. The vast, vast majority of Western music is done on a twelve-tone equal temperament Ooh, system, which is clavier. yeah, which is what your pianos are and and whatever. Um, and basically, we've made. Uh, I got really into microtonal music years ago, and I think it was it was more of a mental exercise because a lot of it I didn't enjoy that much, <laughs> but I liked the thought of finding intervals that were. Um, in better intonation or, or even what they would consider just intonation where they're mathematically in direct relationship. And um, so just applying that uh, for Arabic music, for instance, and this is a big thing with the oud, if I'm playing something that is more of a you know traditional Arabic sound, the microtones are going to tend to be slightly different than if I'm playing Turkish. Mm. Um, oud or and there's there's a lot of different variations i'm i'm speaking in in vague generalities here but some of them their their microtonal thirds tend to be ever so slightly higher than yep. than this next one and understanding that is why um you know people will say oh you were this sounds like x because they're catching those nuances where to western ears we just go, that sounds slightly out of tune, but uh, somehow still cool, you know? Yeah. You know, it is out of tune based on a Western system, but they're not based in that system. So they have these 
these other pieces of notes that they can use. Um, and again, that's the perk of a, a fretless instrument in general is you have all of those microtones available. But if I'm playing blues, I'm using microtones all the time anyway because exactly. I'm bending notes in between. Um, it's just this is kind of continuous blues um, or, or rock or whatever where you're bending a note on a, a guitar you have a finite amount that you can bend that string before it physically can't go any further or it breaks. And uh, with something like this, you can slide your fingers up and down. It's like a fretless bass in that respect, um, but obviously behaves quite a bit different. So you have to kind of learn what it does well, what it does poorly, and accentuate the things it does well. That's what we're all trying to do anyway. So I was going to say, the only thing close, close to that that we, that we would have in the Western uh, sphere would be blues. Or the neutral third that can be heard in uh, rock a lot. Yeah, it's you not can, really minor or major. Right, you can get into, um, and this is a big thing in Western music is actually how we treat thirds that that minor versus major thing. It's a real big thing in like country music, especially country guitar, to do a a minor third up to a major third um, at the end of a line to kind of like pull it back together and. Uh, that is not the same thing, but it's in that same realm of like controlling the tonality. And, you know, we, it's hard to articulate this in a context that matches up fully with Western music because some of these things are so non-Western that you have to go to that context to listen. But I mean, Western musicians have been listening to sitar for a long time, mostly because of the Beatles, but... Um, certainly beyond it's kind of worked its way in although what's ironic and I, I'm, I'll talk about this because I just had to do this um, you know the way that sitar was incorporated into a lot of rock music or, or whatever back um, back along the way and certainly now is using a sitar guitar mm. where it's it has a sitar type of tone but it's tuned like a guitar it has six strings and just has some drone aspects to it and and like twang that makes it sound similar i had to use that for um uh, one of my recent uh, shows at the fulton theater and then i actually just used it uh, last weekend for a we did a beatles uh mass at saint james uh, to relaunch that uh, saturday night music thing and we did the track Tomorrow Never Knows, if if anyone knows that one. And, you know, there's sitar in there. And so instead of, you know, ignoring it or trying to program it on a keyboard, I used, um, actually have a guitar that has um, digital stuff in it as a Variax, where I have an electric sitar sound. So I blended that in with what I was using otherwise. And, and it's that sound. You know, you hear it and you go, man, that's great. Um, so being able to incorporate those things in has become pretty common over the last you know 40 50 years uh in in western music but it's not necessarily it's definitely blending more heavily in the western direction Mm -hmm. like dumping sitar on top of pop music or something like that as opposed to going more that other direction um and one of the one of the groups that i've listened to for years and years that came out in the 70s as uh, John McLaughlin's uh, Shakti which was much more of a uh east 
band meets West, John being a, a British fellow uh, who's played with Miles Davis and all sorts of other people um, and had his own groups, uh, but got into this group with mostly Indian musicians who were doing their own thing and he's layering his guitar into that. So having my ear open to some of those sounds, that direction actually makes it easier for me to incorporate non-Western sounds into Western things now because I'm my ear's so much more open to that. Yeah, for sure. That's really cool, man. And and you said that you have a guitar that's basically like a MIDI for a guitar? So, yeah, they make some like that. The the particular one I'm, I'm talking about is a Line 6 product called a Variax where it has a digital system within it where you can change tuning, you can uh, do virtual instruments. So I can make it sound like a dobro. Um, I could make it sound like an electric 12-string, like a Rickenbacker sort of sound and some other things. And the sounds are um, good. They're usable in a pinch. Um, if you only have, yeah, if you only have one instrument that you can bring for something, it works. Um, and you also have some blending controls, but then it's just a normal guitar other than that. So, um, I will use it as a normal guitar more often and just sneak the other things in when I go, oh, I can't play this acoustic part, which is only four measures and switch instruments and come back. I'm going to quick jump to a, a virtual acoustic guitar just for a couple measures and then jump back. Um, I actually don't use it that way very often. It's more for these non-standard sounds that I would struggle to get otherwise, or an open tuning that would be difficult. If you play any, I don't know, Rolling Stones tunes or something where it's an open G or open A, um, and right after that you have to go to something else, this enables you to do that on the fly, and it's pretty reliable. So, nice tool. Speaking of other instruments that you like to play, you have your hand drum. Yeah, so um, I started experimenting with um, hand pan, uh, man, might have been earlier this year, might have been last year, I don't remember exactly when I first got one. I've seen them play for years and had some friends own them and had an opportunity to get one and and it's a it's a cool instrument, Um, it's very different, I can grab this as well. If you know what, don't know what a pan drum is, it's the metallic, and Grant, you, you'll be able to see it here, but for those listening, it's a metallic big circle drum that has been dented in certain ways to make pitches. Yeah, it's essentially um, uh, an inverted steel drum. That's yeah. actually how it was supposedly uh, first made. And uh, they, have their, they have their pluses and minuses. There are some different kinds. You can get tongue drums where they're actually cut out. Um, these hand pans or uh, the originals were called uh, hung drums. They are all one piece. And so everything resonates with everything else. So if I play this low note, the whole thing is resonating. It doesn't resonate super long, but it's all dependent on a, you know, a single key for the most part. So I call this the din, that's, that's my root. Um, which is a D and then I have an octave and then I have uh, pretty much a, a another scale um, that's uh, just a D minor that starts on my five and goes up to a five 
Um, so you're able to kind of blend these. That sort of thing where you can kind of blend um, the sounds and they roll into each other. It's got kind of a natural, more like contemplative thing because it's kind of a rolling sound. Um, some people get into playing multiple ones at the same time, mm -hmm. or they have very specific things and they that they play on different tunings. And so they might have. Um, I know somebody that has over a dozen of these and uh, and cycles through them depending what they're what they're working on and playing. So it's a cool instrument for that, and it's the sort of thing that for me personally, fits really nicely into the things I'm already doing with the Oud, where it's kind of open-ended. There's something about it that is, um, it doesn't feel Western, but it doesn't feel super foreign, foreign or ethnic in a way that we would say is, is abnormal, especially because I'm using essentially just, uh, you know, a D minor scale. So right. it's, it's very comfortable tonally that way then the actual physical tone is is what it is. But um, it's something that's a good thing to experiment with. Um, I'm, I'm, again, just kind of in my infancy with it. But I like a lot of hand percussion things and do, do some stuff with that. Um, these resonate a lot, so sometimes it, it rings more than you want, and you have to learn how to deal with that. And it's just like anything else. I've got these ideas in my head. My ear hears these sounds. How can I use my ear to get that out on an instrument? Which, um, to tie in a little bit as a, as a teacher, I'm talking about that all the time in some of these classes. Like here at LBC, I have um, you know guitar lab class, which my students are, for the most part, not guitar players, or at least not primarily guitar players. And it's saying, you are musicians. You're thinking about um, things musically, regardless of what your kind of main primary instrument is, how can we apply your musicianship to a, an instrument that is somewhat unfamiliar, maybe awkward to hold, maybe uncomfortable to play, and trying to get music out of it? And uh, that's, that's literally how I'm approaching these things. I'm just a little further along with the oud because I've been doing it for, for a long time now. So, yeah, so that's kind of, a, that's kind of that. Yeah, that's, a, that's a fun instrument to play. And you, you said how much did that cost you? Um, this particular one, I think it was like eight hundred bucks. They're not, they're not super cheap. If you get cheap ones, they're generally junk. Um, but they go up way, way more expensive course, than right. this. Um, the the higher end um, hand pans are gonna push two k. Uh, at least the ones I've seen, and. And same with ouds, it's really hard to get a good acoustic oud under two grand. And it's possible, but um, I've tried enough cheaper ones or even up into the like twelve, fifteen hundred dollar range. And having played some that are worth quite a bit more than that, you go, oh, it's just not comparable. And it's hard mm -hmm. to articulate that to somebody who goes, I don't know, it's just a little bullback guitar thing shouldn't it, it they all sound pretty much the same it's, it's, they don't play the same they don't feel the same and when you're trying to make music you want to be able to pick something up and have it inspire you right um which is why this acoustic electric godin has been 
you know, Godin's done guitars for most of their um, manufacturing career, but they got into these at some point a number of years ago. And it's a hybrid instrument because it's it's a different scale length than a normal one. The the fretboard's much longer. I can play notes on this that I can't play on my acoustic ouds. Um, but it's also a compromise because it's meant to be plugged in. It's meant to pl be played in a context where you need to amplify yourself. And most times, ouds aren't played in that context. So, Or when they are for concerts, they're being mic'd up. So it's really, I got it because... I'm a guitar player and I wanted to play it in groups that would not normally have an hood in them. Mm -hmm. um, and so I made that compromise. It's the same with, with any other instrument in that way. And so being a professional, professional musician, that justifies your purchase. Yeah. So we were talking about this a little bit before, but I can, I can jump into it where um, there's a thing that, and it, it depends on where you are in your career about investing in yourself I'll say that uh, for me, uh, early on in my career, you know, I'm just hustling to pay my bills and keep my kids fed and that sort of thing. You know, it's it's not a uh, it's not a super lucrative thing unless you get lucky. But uh, I was doing pretty well, but I was hustling a lot and I was not investing a ton in my own equipment. Uh, at some point. I had to start doing more of that. And now it's a different world. I've been doing it long enough and I have just an army of instruments. But part of the way that I've gotten around that is by, you know, especially when you're a contractor um, or essentially sole proprietor of a business that is you mm -hmm. under your own name, um, you're viewing it, if you're doing it wisely, um, as a business and uh, so that means having to care about investments but also thinking about things like tax write-offs and uh, tax law is tricky right now so and none uh, of this is financial advice yes <laughs> please please ignore me if uh, if you're uncomfortable but um, yeah the uh, the way that it is at this point is especially if you're doing your own taxes, if you do, you know, uh, one of the online tax programs or something, um, they've made it a lot easier for you to understand how you're claiming things, but then they're also part of your business and they have depreciation values and that sort of thing. So for me, when I purchase an instrument, uh, I, I need to care about, am I using this in a professional context? And so uh, when I bought this Oud, I was not. That was, uh, that was a purchase out of pocket. That was not a write-off at the time um, because I was not able to do anything with it. I hadn't learned it yet, and I didn't have a design to do anything like that. Now I've bought some additional instruments that have been write-offs because I'm using them fully professionally, and... That's a huge benefit to musicians uh, as we're, you know, looking to, I think, especially in this day and age, there's so much of, uh, I can put this gear demo on YouTube and someone's going to give me free equipment or whatever, which happens. Mm -hmm. um, and I've, I've been given things and, and I've had some sponsored deals over time. Um, but in general, uh, 
they can end up being a little more trouble than they're worth unless that's your end goal. And for me, it, it isn't. So uh, I have to kind of think about, oh, this is an investment for me, but it's not just an investment that I say I'm willing to spend this much. I'm investing this, but it's it's really a business purchase. Right. And that changes things. Yeah, it's, it's the concept versus, oh, I want to buy a guitar for my own personal pleasure versus, oh, I actually needed a guitar to do my work. Absolutely. And again, I'm in the position where most of my playing is for work. So when I purchase something, it's specifically to be um, used for something uh, that has a direct outlet. Uh, for instance, I bought a, a new electric guitar month ago or month and a half ago uh, for use at the Fulton Theater because I wanted uh, something that I was comfortable leaving there, but that was a next tier instrument up. And I'm in the fortunate position of being able to, to buy something like that, but it's, it definitely is a business purchase. And, and so I'm going to be, especially with something like that, where you're a contractor, you're being paid and not having taxes pulled out from whatever you're right. being paid. Like this is a write-off that's directly related to that thing. And it's, you don't get one to one dollar value out of it, but it certainly is worth considering. And uh, do you have to incorporate yourself? For that as purposes? No. no okay. um, you you are automatically able to use yourself as your business, um, which is a perk. Um, years ago, I did have an LLC that for a small recording business with uh, a friend of mine from college, um, and that was different. And mm. that I we had to do differently and get some uh, some outside. Um, tax preparation done for us because it was uh, we were not prepared to do that ourselves. Uh, but these sorts of things I'm able to do myself if I choose. So say always talk to a tax professional finance advisor, especially if you're a musician, because it can get very complicated very quickly. Yeah, absolutely. And and just as an independent contractor of any sort, you, you want to make sure your ducks are in a row. Um, but uh, we were talking about this earlier too. One of the one of the perks for me is that I don't do too many things where the the overall money amount would be considered like casual labor or or like under mm -hmm. the table sort of uh, payment. So I'm getting 1099s or or W2s for almost everything that I do, and then it just gives me a paper trail. If you have to keep your own receipts and you have to go through all of that um do your own bookkeeping it's another you know layer to it but also you know helps you to be on the legal side of things and mm -hmm. and can offer you some protection too so speaking about recording you've done mixing max and mastering for a, a long time yeah so that was uh, that was my degree in school uh i I knew I was going to uh, end up being more of a player than a recording engineer, uh, so I decided to incorporate another piece into my musical journey in college and decided recording was interesting to me. So um, I kind of threw myself into that and um, have some friends doing it full-time. I, I never did it full-time, but I did have that business very, very shortly after um, school and have continued to do uh, some version of 
mixing and mastering um, for the entirety of the time I've been a professional musician. Um, it's morphed at different times, but you know, one of the perks of, of that again is if I'm doing session work, it's become a thing, especially with COVID, but uh, even before you were of a lot of value, if you could track something of good quality at home mm. and an artist didn't need to uh, book right. out a recording studio for you to go and track. So um, that has benefited me and, and many others uh, just as the quality of what would be considered probably like prosumer gear where it's it's pro level gear ish but it's meant to be small format or just a couple channels of like a preamp or something um that the the cost of those has come down somewhat but the quality's gone up quite a bit and what's available now for a home recording rig is incredible so just being able to use those sorts of things independently has changed the game but at the end of the day there's a reason why everyone still records in these big studios for for most things it's because they have the ability to do things we can't do otherwise so um so yeah so i'm connected at uh, currently at a studio here in uh, lancaster area that is relatively new um it's not a traditional recording studio exactly in the context of of how a lot of people think about it it's a little more of a post-production house meaning um, doing sound for uh, video like movies and tv and that sort of thing but certainly can do music as well and we've been starting to do more music actually um, so that's a, a fantastic facility it gives you a lot of uh, of options for things when you have such a great place in your backyard, you know. What are some things that musicians or uh, artists can do pre-production that helps post-production immensely? Oh, man, that's a great question. Uh, definitely, if you're a band, one of the things that's so difficult working with bands is when they come in and they're not 100% on it and they're still working out arrangements or people haven't rehearsed well or whatever. Like when you get into the studio, time is money quite literally. Quite literally and yes. um, you want to have your ducks in a row uh, for sure. You want to be rehearsed and whatever. But the other thing is caring about your equipment. And, you know, it's amazing how guitar players, especially, you know, we play these instruments that, change with changing temperature and humidity and all of that and and many instruments do but mm -hmm. when we're a fretted instrument and we have changes like that um, you can be in tune on your open strings and be out of tune further up your yep. guitar neck because of intonation and i can't tell you how many times i've either been in a project where i'm also a player or i've been a recording engineer where someone has a poorly intonated instrument and it destroys their tracks you can't they're not usable um and because we mentioned before that i'd done that uh that live um tracking i i wasn't mixing it live i was taking live recordings and mixing them for uh jtl actually uh predominantly and uh for for victory uh years ago and um, that's a time where in the room things might feel okay, 
but when you get back under the the uh, cold light of the you know high end headphones, when I'm able to solo tracks, and you go, oh man, this is rough. Like how something was out of tune or something uh, got screwed up, and how do you fix it? Um, so I think in general, it's like care about your preparation, care about your equipment. It's all the basic stuff, but it's the stuff that can undercut you the quickest when you're in that environment. I was going to say, and especially as a, a musician who's playing that instrument all the time, it, you are getting, your ears getting accustomed to all of the, the breakage, the minor things that are setting it off anyway. So you're not, you're not even going to recognize. Yeah, definitely can. If you're, if you're not real tuned in with that stuff, you can kind of start to talk yourself into it or, you're so into the performance side of things that you're not stopping and listening. And when you stop and listen to it recorded, you know, record the recording doesn't lie. And, you know, it's, it's actually a great learning tool for any musician anyway. Uh, just as an aside to say, record yourself, record yourself as much as possible and listen back because it does not matter what feedback you get from someone in the room with you you hearing yourself will be the most honest appraisal of what's actually happening. Absolutely. And if, and more pre-production stuff, make sure you listen to yourself before you go into a studio, use the instrument you're going to use and do it with that first and then listen back. So that way, you know, okay, this is supposed to be what it sounds like. Yeah. And I think with, uh, with guitar players, especially, you know, we have our, um, our favorite instruments and, mm. and whatever, but they don't always translate as well. Um, and I've been in the situation on both sides of it, actually, to go in and track with my, maybe my favorite acoustic guitar, and it's not working in the room or with the mics or whatever, yeah. end up having to use somebody else's gear or, or like a studio instrument or having to do this with, and this has actually happened more where I'm the one who says, could you try this instead? And that's uncomfortable when it's a new instrument and you got to figure out how to make it work. But it's with the end goal of we want it to sound good, right? If it's going to, you know, recordings last theoretically forever, you want it to be something that you don't mind hearing over and over again and making compromises on the front end gets into that you know, as we say, a garbage in, garbage out principle, which is you start with something that's inferior and you can work pretty hard trying to fix it. And it's never going to quite get there as as opposed to just fixing it right away, making it better from the beginning. And then you have more to work with at the end anyway. What are some of the things that musicians could benefit from, like term wise <clears throat> or knowing uh, specific things that post-production people might say to them well in post-production generally that that'd be less of a thing but in the recording studio um i wouldn't say terminology is a is a huge impediment because generally we're we're saying hey we're just gonna take that again let's do right. another pass at this sort of thing that that kind of deal um but if you want to sit in during a mixing session or have any input on that sort of thing you know, we're generally thinking most good engineers are going to have uh, a lot of frequency dependent things that they're listening for. And so just understanding frequency range of your instrument, understanding uh, where it's the strongest, where it's the loudest, um, 
if there are any places where you can get some not exactly offensive frequencies, but things that build up in a way that's that's uh not pleasant. Yeah, not not pleasant or constructive, mm-hmm. uh, especially for a mix, because a lot of times in a mix environment, we're getting rid of things that aren't bad. We're just getting rid of them to make space for something else. And so if you are uncomfortable with that because you go in and say, that's not how my guitar sounded. Um, it's like, wait till you hear it in the mix to see if it's working and understand that when you ask for things, one of the terms that might be worth talking about actually is related to that, which is masking. Mm. Anytime you have masking with frequencies, it just means two sources or more have a lot of a particular frequency range. And when they are both at roughly the same volume, it's really hard to tell them apart because they kind of layer a, you know, on top of each other. So one of the ways that we as engineers get around that is by cutting a certain frequency for one instrument and slightly boosting it for the other instrument. Um, kick drum and bass, real common thing with that. Sometimes between multiple microphones um, on the same instrument. There's all sorts of ways that it can be approached, but just in a basic um, setup, thinking about masking as if I turn everything loud and and push it in because I go, I want it to sound big. I want it to sound... All of a sudden, you can't tell what's going on. You go, oh, this is really messy mix or it's muffled or it's whatever. A lot of times, that's part of what's happening there. And I should uh, mention, um, even with your... The EQing, I guess, that would be for giving space for other instruments. It's, it's the difference between getting rid of the higher frequencies in the guitar for space for a violin or for space of a, a piano or stuff like that that is, is that generally correct yeah it's some sometimes it's it's not so much that you're saying it, theoretically you're making space for another instrument or another range of another instrument most of the instruments are going to cover most of those ranges right. so it's ju- it's not so much saying we don't want any of this here and all of this here right. it's just saying we're going to give it a little bit we're going to drop this a little bit for this instrument so that this one can shine and kind of cut through. Gotcha. So we're going to move on to teaching. You You have now taken over Frank and Marshall College. Yeah. What's that been like for you? Um, well, uh, pretty seamless from the perspective of, you know, I've been doing this uh, teaching thing for a long time mm-hmm. and, uh, yeah, still have, still have the program here at, at LBC as well. Um, so in that respect, it's the same, very different program. Uh, so that it has a different set of stipulations and, um, you know, you've had some folks on here already, uh, Doris, uh, Hall Galati being one of them that also teaches at both places. And there's, um, there are different expectations with certain programs versus other programs. Uh, not just because this school is like better or bigger or something, but because the program itself is different and the music program there is different than at, uh, LBC. So that's, that's pretty distinct. And that's been part of my work is to kind of figure out what, uh, what they're looking for, what benefits their program, how to, you know, frankly, as a instructor anywhere, you're jumping through the hoops that they've asked you to jump through. Um, and as an adjunct, you have a little more leeway probably, but you also have less 
uh, clout to try to yeah. change anything. So you're trying to figure out how best to incorporate yourself into a system that exists already. Um, but it's been great and actually a, a fair amount of students already. So um, it's nice to have that. Although, you know, be careful what you wish for because it's the, I've run into this a number of times now in my career where I've said yes to a lot of things. It's nice to be first call for a lot of things. And then at some point you go, I am physically out of hours. I can't fit this stuff in anymore. And I've hit some of those limits uh, more recently again. And it's just a reminder of prioritizing what you want to do and, and figuring out what's the best fit for you. And to bounce or piggyback off of that, uh, make sure you schedule like rest as well. For sure. And that has been something that traditionally I have not done well. Um, I have friends that do that way better than me. And I'm starting to have to learn to do that because it is so um, unforgiving when you're in the midst of these things. If I, you know, I have my, my normal work during the week, I have two schools, I'm teaching multiple classes here at LBC, and I have a theater show running um, six days a week. And so it's, it's a hustle. It's looking at my phone going, where do I need to be next? And uh, how many minutes do I have to do this thing before I have to be to the next thing? And when you're doing that all the time, it will absolutely burn you out after a while. So you need to figure out times when you can step back. Um, but when you've been in the hustle for so long, as a lot of um, artists and musicians have, it's hard to say no to certain things. Absolutely. So um, I've been guilty of saying yes to things because I don't want to say no and then kind of paying for it after the fact. So, uh, yeah, still a learning process for me, but I'm, I'm figuring out moving into the next few months and then into the, the new calendar year what that's going to look like for me now that I've said yes to a different set of things. And even on top of that, you get it, especially for those with families, you got to think about your family time too, because family will burn you out as well. Absolutely. And, um, and in general, you know, ages of kids and schedules of your, you know, your spouse's work or, Mm -hmm. or whatever, or extended families that are close, um, all of that has to be part of the conversation. And occasionally you have to make compromises that, uh, you're not going to be happy to make. And as artists, I think we sometimes really resent those compromises. So that's a that's a thing to be aware of both directions of like, where am I having to compromise and what what's really the best thing overall? And maybe maybe it means having to say no to something you would prefer to say yes to. How do you, as uh, a musician who goes through these times where, because uh, multiple musicians do this, they go a time where, okay, a week I'm completely booked, I have no time whatsoever, and then the next week they've got nothing. How do you manage those differences? How do you, uh, because you can go high energy and then that whole week you're like, what am I doing with my life? That's a good question and one that I'm not even the best one to answer at this point because I generally don't have weeks where nothing's happening Mm. anymore. Um, I used to. I used to have chunks of time where there was less going on. Um, Not generally zero, but certainly less. Um, 
I think that's because of the breadth of things that I do. Uh, if I were just teaching or just gigging, um, there's a reason why a lot of people that have done that have ended up getting at least part-time day jobs just yeah. to kind of make it easier to make sure their bills are paid, things are a little more stable. Then if you get that last-minute cancellation, it's more like, oh, okay, I got have a free evening now as opposed to I needed that to go buy groceries or right. something. And, yeah, especially if you've got a family involved in that, that's pretty – Grindy. So I think the easy thing is to say you don't treat the really busy times like they are the consistent thing. You try to take it as, okay, I'm busy now. I'm going to be less busy later. I'm going to try to balance this out by saying I'm saving X number of dollars or I'm pushing this other thing off until this other week because I should have enough time then and just kind of like trying to balance but that's a hard thing to do if you're in the middle of the hustle because you're trying to make sure you're maximizing your availability and and uh, your earning power in that way. Um, yeah, it's it's different depending on what angle of of the industry you're you're taking as well. If you're doing a lot of teaching, it's kind of one answer. If you're doing a lot of gigging, some of that ends up being seasonal. You know, there's a lot of outdoor stuff happening over the summer and then you hit the fall and that just kind of drops up precipitously. So um, being aware of those times and seasons. You yeah, have you have to, to be. And and I know the, the folks who do it regularly, they are right. and they understand, hey, I'm real busy over these three months and then things back off and I'm into this time of the year for other things. Um, but when you're starting out, that can be tricky to make that transition. So any way you can give yourself a cushion is beneficial. Um, even to the point where I've had this discussion more recently with some folks, it's okay to not do this stuff full time mm. uh, initially or maybe ever. And again, I'm fortunate that I've been able to figure out a way to make it a full time thing, but it's full time between a bunch of things. Actually, quite a bit more than full time, um, which again is a, there's plus and minus with that. But um, if you want to keep some integrity of your artistic um, outlet, uh, if that's important to you, or you just don't want to have to worry about making sure your bills are paid, it's a lot easier to do this on the hobby level and build out of that. Um, but if you're in school as a music major or or you've uh, you've already started doing some uh, you know more serious teaching or gigging or whatever. It's figuring out a way to incorporate that into a um, a field where it's a, able to be accommodated. Which is why just think about actors. How many actors do you know that have spent most of their time in the um, service industry somehow? You know, waiting tables or working fast food or whatever it is. Because those schedules, oftentimes, they're volatile, but they're they're oftentimes flexible enough that if you get a call for uh, you know an audition or something, you can go and do it, and um, you can take those in the rest of the the artistic world, musical world as well, knowing that they are also 
pretty grindy sometimes. They're not the most fun industries to be in unless you really enjoy that sort of interaction. But for a lot of people, it's like fun for a while and then they're done with it. And uh, that might have to be something if you're gigging a lot and you're getting offers for things, but you, you know, the nine to five is overlapping that in a way that doesn't work. Then you have to decide where your priorities are, you know. Absolutely. And we mentioned uh, the seasons thing. And you can do one thing I, I would highly suggest musicians because you can get started in the summer and things will be great. But like you said, as everything shuts down during the winter and it becomes really, really cold outside, especially here in Central PA, things stop. Yeah, it depends on the types of gigs you're doing. Yeah, right. I, I think that's where you get into self-promotion and marketing too, but also having the breadth to do multiple things. Um, if I'm going to uh, market myself to, I don't know, like wineries and clubs and things over the uh, summer and into the fall, at some point that starts to shift and maybe I'm trying to book Christmas parties yep. or, or whatever. And, uh, you know, if that's a priority for me, I also have to be starting booking things way early. Way early. You can't wait. Um, so just kind of understanding that and anyone who's been in this world, this isn't new information. This is all real pretty basic stuff. But if you haven't been, those are the ways you have to think about it. It's not like you just decide one day you want to start playing some solo gigs and like call a club and they say, sure, what are you doing this Thursday? You know, it generally doesn't happen like that. So, no. and if you're in the teaching industry recognize that there's teaching seasons, there's whatever seasons uh because there's it is something i didn't think about at all uh just starting into this there's a wedding season there's there's a uh you know a whatever season for anything and you yeah. have to plan ahead yeah and understanding Budget. understanding what you're looking to do and then yeah as you say like budgeting is is everything in this world if you're uh if you're not consistent with if you can book gigs that are regular um, and you go, oh, okay, I have this for this amount of time, like certain types of gigs um, are only going to be available in certain seasons. Other ones are a little more flexible, but you're also dependent on the season for the venue, um, mm -hmm. whether it's a, a restaurant or a store or, uh, or something like that. Um, you know, you have to understand the the kind of overall arc of of the year and for teaching, too. And, and again, a lot of people who are playing at least semi-professionally are, are generally doing some teaching. Not everybody does, but a lot of people do. Uh, when you're doing that, you understand that summer is actually sometimes the most volatile for that because everyone's on vacation and everything's happening you get into the school year and it's like, oh, it's, you know, it's Tuesday at 4.30. always have this guitar lesson, you know, that sort of thing. You're able to build off of that. And, you know, kids still want to learn music all the time. So that's a good thing to kind of use as a leverage tool if you're trying to get into that, for sure. So I have some general questions now that I have new general questions I didn't ask you last time. Sure. What is one of the best pieces of advice that you've been ever given? Um, man, 
I should have uh, I should have asked you for these ahead of time so I could think about them. Um, I mean, one of the best pieces of advice for sure is um, being told at some point along the way. It was actually in the context of reading music, but I've used it for other things. Was at the end of the day, rhythm is maybe the most important thing that Absolutely. we're looking at. And I, at the time, pushed back on that and would have said, "No, I think uh, you know melody is is more important. Like if you don't have the right notes, like what does the rest matter?" And the longer I've done this the more convinced I've been that it is actually rhythm that's driving most of this. And, and you can have rhythm without melody and be very content sometimes. So it makes some sense. There's something very kind of almost primal about rhythm, uh, really, really kind of foundational level. Um, so just focusing on rhythm and making that something that's, um, if you if you are a performing musician or, or learning that that's a focus for you to really be locked in on um, so i would say in a musical context that's probably the best advice i ever got yeah because you can make incredible melodies but if you don't have the the uh ability to put them in time correctly yeah and just understanding phrasing and understanding right. um you know like chunks of cyclical chunks of of rhythms that have a particular feel or whatever it it massively changes everything so yeah definitely definitely important and we're not talking about one specific rhythm at all but learn multiple rhythms there are an infinitesimal uh different types of rhythms whether it be a guitar whether it be piano whether it be uh like you got the clavichord, you got the the clave, right? That that but 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 like that kind of rhythm, or the harmonic rhythm of the twelve bar blues, right? The uh, or you have your phrases within like a Bach piece, that that kind of rhythm, and how you can manipulate that or stay true to uh, those rhythms and really expand and bring those pieces to life using your rhythms. For example, uh. For me, I'm not a very good uh, improv person at all. However, uh, I got invited up to play piano to do uh, during a Roots and Blues jam session, and um, uh, shout out to Bobby Gentello who 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 invited or who let me go up there. But I didn't know what I was doing. Right, I had the wherewithal to know. Okay, we're in E and we're jamming in blues and E. I can figure that out. Twelve bar blues, no problem. Uh, but what do I do within that? is the question and oftentimes when it's in that kind of context you are doing rhythm or you are doing melody right and if you're going to play rhythm on a piano you better have your rhythm down or else it's going to show you want you want some command over um you know the technical aspects of of anything that you're doing but in terms of like rhythmic control being able to subdivide beats, being able to play reliably in in like little phrases mm-hmm. is huge, and um, yeah, being able to understand the context that you're in gives you a framework, but you still have to try to not make yourself look foolish, you know, when you're up there, which generally means do less yes. as opposed to doing more. Um, 
but there again, it if you can feel subdivisions and phrases because you've kind of experimented with that or, or actually worked on those, they can start to just be available for you. They're in your toolbox. Um, I talk about this with, with uh, students all the time of what we're talking about isn't something that is possible for you to do. It's something that's really in your vocabulary. That's just available for you when you need it. And if you have a vocabulary that it, it, you know is broad enough you can be put into an uncomfortable situation and still pull something out that's musical because you've got enough to pull from. And it doesn't mean you're just trying to throw out every great line you can think of saying, I, I've got this stuff in my toolbox. I know it. I know it works. And being able to m work from there. And a lot of that is like practicing licks, practicing stuff like that, because I would have been helpless had I gone up there without knowing some certain licks that I know would work in a straight E uh, blues, and that's what they were jamming on E for the longest time. I was like, okay, when's it gonna go to the four? Sometimes it never goes to the four, and having to learn licks yep. within a one chord setting is really important sometimes because that will happen. And everyone else is soloing out an E, and I'm like, I don't. I've. What if you've never learned how to solo in one chord? Mm -hmm. Because it's mm -hmm. that's completely different versus soloing in something you know okay it's it's one it's it's the one for four bars and it's four for four bars and you know like it's the stuff like that so learning how to play licks in multiple different keys and multiple different settings and in uh multiple different harmonic progressions for sure and which kind of gets me back to the oud again where when you're playing over one tonality for a long time you have to be able to pull from some things to keep it interesting or you start getting tired of listening to yourself play, Absolutely. which is actually not a bad practicing tool to play until you're tired of it. And then you start, if you keep going, you start going for stuff you wouldn't have done otherwise because you're frankly just tired of, of hearing, hearing those other things. So yeah, for sure. So where can people find you in uh, St. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to screw that one No, up it's again. all right. St. James Episcopal Church. Yeah, so St. James is uh, downtown Lancaster, uh, corner of Duke and Orange. Um, we're, uh, you know, they have their standard Sunday uh, fair, but we also have a number of other things going on uh, right now, uh, one of which, again, we mentioned the Saturday evening thing. Um, roughly once a month right now, we have uh, a John Coltrane uh, mass coming up in October, and then uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young coming up in November, um, and then uh, a whole other stack of them coming in the new year. Um, so those those are uh, are free and open to to anybody. You can find those there. St. James is on social media, but also um, you know physically downtown they have uh, you know sandwich board advertisements and posters and things around just uh, just for the community. Um, and then uh, they do their, their Compline service on a, a first Friday. And first Friday in Lancaster is a pretty big deal. There's a lot of stuff going on. Um, that service is at 9. It's uh, really short. I play oud at the beginning. And then there's a a cappella uh, choir that does like mostly in the kind of Gregorian chant sort of um uh world some different types of pieces but those acapella pieces 
and it's you know 25 30 minutes um really really nice sort of different contemplative sort of thing um where it's still bite size mm. you know contemplative sometimes can feel like oh i need to go on a retreat and like leave my cell phone at home and whatever whatever that means to somebody but um these are ways to kind of dip your toe into some of what's going on there and with that said this has been the story podcast you can find us anywhere you look just look up the story cory rosen c-o-r-y-r-o-s-e-n we're on facebook spotify apple Podcasts, anywhere that you can listen you can find us there we have a website coming up soon so stay tuned for that because that's i realized that was important <laughs> we up next we have a few cool guests this week we have tomorrow we have right coast recordings logan kurtek he's an amazing saxophone player who's played a lot of places and this weekend we have Luther and Barb Tyree. They are uh, Luther has his own music stuff going on, and Barbara decides to has create a business out of taking old, broken, or uh, sentimental pieces of instruments and turning them into jewelry or furniture and stuff like that. So I'm really excited to figure out what she does and maybe what is the most cool thing she's turned into something else. With that, uh. But with all that said, we won't be back until next Monday or Friday, uh, depending on on a few things that happen. So we're going to take a little bit of a break for a while. So if you want to catch up on all of our past episodes, please do be sure to check out all of our past catalog. We have 88 people before Chris Keeney, including also Chris Keeney. (laughs) So please be sure to check all that stuff out. And I hope you guys have a wonderful rest of your day. See you guys.